as we open God's Word this morning. We're going to be looking again in this next section in Luke, Luke chapter 13, and we're looking at verses 1 to 9. Luke chapter 13, verse 1 to 9. Now before we read this passage, I want to put a frame again around the picture. And the frame around the picture this morning is, we have an almighty and a sovereign God who not just knows everything that happens, but has everything that happens in his hands. And he knows when stuff happens. And you know what I mean by that. When those things happen in life that you weren't expecting. And I'm not talking about the stuff you bring down on your own head. I'm speaking about the unexpected, the accidents, the sicknesses that come. We have a sovereign God who is in control. And so as we read this passage this morning, you need to keep that in mind. That is the framework within which this takes place. Let's read then together from Luke chapter 13, verse 1 to 9. There were some present at that very time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those eighteen on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dressers, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he, that's the vine dresser, said to him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. In life, Stuff happens. History tells us of many, many disasters that suddenly came on people when they were thinking they were doing one thing, stuff happened. For instance, the Hindenburg. Back in 1937, this massive, massive airship, German-built airship, was the largest one ever built, 800 feet long. And while it was attempting to dock at the Naval Air Station at Lakehurst in New Jersey in America, it caught fire and crashed. And you might have heard the recordings of that guy who was on the radio and he sees this happening and he goes into a state of shock that he can't speak anymore. Of of the 97 people on board, 35 died, plus work on the ground. In the newspapers straight after that event, there were many, many comments 
about the unjust ending of lives, etc. Well, in our modern time now, we've had our fair share of disasters too. Just think back to 9-11, right? The morning it was happening, I was on my way to school and I thought it was some fantastic movie that they were showing. I thought, wow, why did they put these good things on at 8 o'clock in the morning? But it wasn't. It was actually happening. And I remember I was there half-dressed for the rest of the morning because I couldn't believe it and I still had to get to school and then we had to deal with a whole school full of kids who had seen this. That day, 2,996 people thought they were just going to work, but life changed. And I remember one woman standing and it was after the first plane had hit, it was when the second one was busy flying into that building, this, someone was recording her and she, was, she said this, and it's, it stuck to me, stuck with me till this day. She said, oh my God, where is God? And then just recently we had the um, Air Malaysia plane, MH370, that just disappeared. 239 people killed. And I remember this one uh, Malaysian man, he was standing with his family and the TV cameras, as they are like vultures sometimes around, um, these TV cameras were on this man. And in, in Malaysian, which was later translated, he was saying, we are a good family. The shock of it. Why does it happen to us? You see, when disasters hit us in life, we often start asking questions and the following questions might be asked. If God is good, why does he allow these things to happen? You might even have said that yourself. Your own situation, you might have discovered that you've got a sickness. You might have had a personal tragedy in the family or even just a setback that you really weren't expecting. And an automatic question sometimes is this one too. What have I done wrong? Have you ever asked that question? This is happening. What have I done wrong? You see, we need to ask ourselves, and this passage is going to bring it up this morning, these things happen, but are the right questions being asked? In this passage this morning, a report was brought to Jesus about a terrible happening in Jerusalem. And this report had come from Jerusalem. Remember, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. Some of the, the leaders had come from the uh, Jewish church, uh, the, the Jewish um, synagogue in Jerusalem, and they were coming down to hear what Jesus was saying. Some of the crowds would have heard too, and with them comes this news of this terrible happening that had just happened in Jerusalem, where Pilate had slaughtered Galileans who were who had been on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to come and offer sacrifices, and while they were offering their sacrifices, he had slaughtered them in front of the altar. Now, to a Jewish ear, that was terrible because the holiness of God's temple had been desecrated and much more to that. And this report had come to Jesus at this very time when he's speaking to people and one had to ask yourself why did it come at that very specific point and I'll address that now. Pilate had killed these people while they were busy doing what God had said they must do. 
And that's why that verse says there, their blood was mixed with that of their sacrifices. I've heard weird and wonderful sermons on that verse. That he was into spiritism and everything. No, no. They were busy sacrificing. And as they were sacrificing, he cut them down and their blood mixed with that of the bulls and goats and whatever was being sacrificed. That's what it's saying. We're not told anything else. Now, you need a little bit of background on the Jews and Pilate. There was a bit of a, I wouldn't even call it a love-hate relationship, it was a hate-hate relationship between the Jews and Pontius Pilate or Pontius Pilatus in his native tongue. The governor of Judah, who was in that position for 10 years. You see, Pilate saw the Jews as a pain in the neck. Because these Jews were constantly rebelling. They were constantly inciting insurrection against him and against the Roman authorities. What he failed to see was that half of it was due to himself. He was doing things to make them angry. What did he do? Well, history tells us, and Josephus tells us as well, who's an early commentator on um, early Christian and early um, church history, he says that Pilate, when he came into governorship, he brought his army and he relocated his army headquarters to Jerusalem. And as they came marching into Jerusalem, the, the army was, had their standards up in front of them and on their standards was emblazoned the faith of the emperor. And what did they do with all these standards? They went and planted them in sight of the temple. Now that was sacrilege to Jews too because this was the image of an emperor who was near to the temple in the sight of God. And so he made the people angry. What else did he do? Well, he didn't just do that. He put his palace on Mount Zion, the holy mount of the Jews. And on the walls of this palace he hung golden shields with the names of his gods on them, on the Jews' holy mount. Can you see why they were starting to get angry? And then to cap it all, he then went into the temple and he took some of the temple revenue to build his aqueducts. Now this money had been given for God's work in the temple, for God to use, for the use in the temple for the use of the priests. And here comes this foreigner, this Gentile, this unclean person, and he comes and he takes the money belonging to God. And that nearly brought his governorship to an end because the whole city was up and up. So that was Pilate and the Jews. Well, the Jews weren't as innocent either because they used Pilate to further their own religious political ends because it was them who would later get Jesus to appear before Pilate because they wanted to crucify him and they wanted to use Pilate for that. So this report comes to Pilate of these Galileans that had been cut down while they were worshipping in the temple. Now some say that it might have been a trap to get Jesus to speak out against Pilate. You see, who had come down from Jerusalem? Some of these Jewish leaders had come down and scripture tells us in passages before this they were seeking for a reason to find, to stop Jesus and to kill him. And so whoever asks this question, it could have been one of these leaders. 
the response they get from Jesus gives us a little bit of an indication of their heart when they asked, when they brought this report. And so they could have been here to trap Jesus. Because if they could get Jesus to speak out against Pilate, then they could officially accuse Jesus before the governor of bringing a rebellion against the governor. However, if Jesus chose to ignore what had just been told to him, then they could accuse Jesus before the people of not caring for the Jewish people and being disloyal. You see? So Jesus was between two positions. But whatever their intentions, Jesus picks up from them a wrong attitude in their words and he points out a wrong heart attitude in them. A heart attitude which has this attitude of, I am better than the other person. Look what Pilate has done. He is such an evil person. Look what he's done. We are better than him. And Jesus points out to them that their heart attitude is putting them in a, greater da- in a great danger. And he spells that out in what he says to them next. So he uses what they've said to them and he, and he turns it and he shows them their hearts are wrong before God. This is what he says. He says, verse 2, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all the Galileans because they suffered this fate? Now please note, he's not here speaking about people bringing consequences down on their own heads. They were doing what they thought was right, what God had told them to do. I want you to go and sacrifice in the temple. And so they were on a pilgrimage from Galilee and they were coming to obey God. And they get cut down while they are doing what's right. Remember that. You see, there was a popular view around that accidents and tragedies and sickness and physical ailments, blindness, lameness, everything was due to personal sin. So if you've done something wrong, that is the reason why you are lame. That is the reason why you are blind. That is the reason why accidents happen to you. You've done something wrong against God. You've sinned. It was a common attitude around. Turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 9. And I want to show you, it's a really important passage, this one. Speaking about people where something's happened to them and God's perspective on it. John chapter 9, and we're just going to read the first seven verses. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, now here's God's perspective on that. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now take note of that. This man was blind, why? So that God's works could be displayed through this man. We are not going to touch on that reason further today. There's another reason we're going to be looking at why things happen to people. But so take note of this one. This is one of the reasons why stuff happens to people. So that God's work can be displayed through that situation and through you. Let's read on. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. And then, if you're really interested, go and read what happens. And I tell you, God's name is glorified there, and the names of those who come against Christ are brought to, to nothing. They made fun of. Go and read that account. It's really interesting. 
So that's one reason God gives why stuff happens, right? No, it's not because of sin that you have done that stuff happens to you. He says here it is so that God's work can be displayed. So let's take up Jesus' account here. So these Galileans must have done something wrong to be killed in this way. That was the general opinion that was around. God was angry with them in some way. And even while they were sacrificing, and this happens. Job's friends back in the Old Testament, way back, thought the same way. What did Eliphaz, remember that unwise friend? What did he say to Job? He said this to Job. Here's a guy sitting on a rubbish dump, covered in scabs. He's lost everything. And here comes this very nice friend of his with advice. All about not uplifting. Here it is. But it's the mindset. This is what Eliphaz says to Job. Remember, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright, upright cut off? In other words, Job, you can't be upright. You can't be innocent. You must have done something wrong. That's why this is happening to you. This opinion is still around today. Something happens to you and you say, like I've said before, what have I done wrong? Or something happens to someone else. You look at them and you say, what did that guy do? I thought he was such a good guy. In other words, I must be wrong. He can't be such a good guy. Or something happens to a Christian family. Remember that missionary that was killed in India? He was busy evangelizing to the Hindus and they killed him and his son in their car. And so people look at this Christian and they said, I thought they were such a good Christian family. But look what's happened to them. So we must be wrong. They must have done something. Ever caught yourself thinking this way? You see, the wrong thinking is this. Bad stuff is happening to people because they are bad. No, Jesus says that's wrong. I tell you no, but unless you repent, you are all, you all will likewise perish. You see, here's the lesson we have to learn when disasters and setbacks hit us in life. They are a reminder of our mortality. They are a reminder of our mortality. And Jesus says here, they are a call to repentance and a warning that the greatest disaster of all will happen to you and I if we do not repent. He says, you will perish. Now, if you're a non-Christian here today, I want you really to listen. If you haven't given your heart to the Lord Jesus Christ, listen to me. When stuff happens to you, God is saying to you, you've got time to repent. This disaster has happened, but you're still breathing. There is time to repent. What is on display? It's his goodness on display, isn't it? He could have taken you in that moment, but he didn't. He's saying, there is time to repent. Repent or you will perish. And not necessarily in the same way. You're not going to be cut down while you're busy sacrificing. It's not what he's saying here. It doesn't mean you will necessarily physically die because we're all going to die at some stage. But you will die eternally if you do not repent, he says. Repent or you will perish. Now notice how Jesus moves it here. He says, he moves it here from them to you. They were speaking about what had happened to these people. Jesus moves it from them to you. You see, disaster could have happened to you too, but it didn't, says Jesus. 
final judgment, the ultimate disaster is coming to the whole world, but you, as you still stand before me, still have time to repent. Without genuine conversion, no one is saved, all perish. That's what Jesus is saying. And so if you're not a Christian here today, you need to take note of this. Everyone should ask themselves the question. And if you think you're a Christian, you need to ask yourself this question too. Because I'm convinced that in churches, there are Christians sitting there who think they are Christians. Now I know that sounds double. There are people sitting here who think you are Christians. But has the following happened in your life? Have you changed from Satan's grip to God's grace? Has that ever happened in your life, in reality? Have you moved from darkness to light? Have you been brought from death to life, from sin to holiness? And we'll touch on that again with that, with that story that's coming, the parable of the tree. Have you moved from death to life, from sin to holiness? Has this change actually happened in your life? Or are you just living the Christian label? It's all on the outside. Jesus says, unless you are converted to, you will perish in your sin. And yes, Pilate killed these Galileans, even in, um, but even in the absence of persecution, death can come unexpectedly to anyone. You don't have to be persecuted to die. You can just die. We are mortal. But are you ready for that moment? You see, being killed... And not being killed is not the measure of a person's righteousness or their unrighteousness. Anyone can die. It's only God's grace that causes us to live. And we need to take note of that this morning. God's grace is what causes us to live. It's what sustains us every day. Nothing else. And so when I live through disasters, all I can say is it's God's grace on display to me. When people live through disasters, it's God's grace on display to them and to me, because I could have been one of them. And so the time granted by God for repentance is what? It's limited. Who's going to live forever? Time for grace and for repentance is limited. There's a second incorrect attitude that Jesus points out here, and it's this one. And ask yourself, have you been caught thinking this way? My sin is not as bad as others' sin. Have you ever caught yourself thinking that? You see someone walking down the road, right? They might be drunk as a skunk walking. They can't walk a straight line. And what do you think? God, at least I'm not like that. This is this attitude. My sins are not as bad as others. Jesus uses a second example there, the pool of Siloam and the tower of Siloam. He says, do you suppose that all these men, in verses 4 to 5, who died when the tire of Siloam fell on them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? You see, the tower of Siloam was this fortifying tower, and there's kind of a, there's kind of a bitter mix there. It was a fortifying tower that fell down and killed people. It was a tower that was built into the city wall, and it collapsed, killing 18 pilgrims who were there on a pilgrimage. And they were gathered round the pool of Siloam, which was kind of a gathering point for many of the pilgrims. And there this tower collapses and it falls down and kills these people. Now, there's something else you need to understand here. There's an attitude around among the Jews of Jerusalem. And it was like this. They looked down on any other Jews 
who lived outside Jerusalem. They were seen as country folk. But if you lived as a Jew in Jerusalem, you'd kind of arrived. I call them the Jerusalem Jaffers. I don't have to say more, right? Well, there was this attitude around, you see. If you live in Jerusalem and you're a Jew, then you've arrived. Anyone else? Kind of second rate. And so, this tower falls and it kills these pilgrims who were mostly the people who were around that area. And Jesus says to him, do you think that these people were in any worse culprits than all the Jewish men of Jerusalem? And the original text says that. All the men of Jerusalem, all these people who think they are something, do you think that these people are any worse than them? Than you, says Jesus, to people standing in front of him who would have been from Jerusalem. And so Jesus corrects their proud thoughts. And the point, just in case they thought they were better than others, he says, don't for a moment think that you can escape the judgment of God. You may be a Jew or a Jewish leader. You may be the very seed of Abraham. But unless you repent, you all likewise perish. Do you see his point? Don't think that you're safe because you are a Jew in Jerusalem. The seed of Abraham. Unless you repent, you will all Likewise, perish. Now, the Jewish leaders who have been standing there would have been very uncomfortable with Jesus pointing this out to them as well. See, what was he saying to them? He's saying to them, your sin is as bad as the next man's sin. I've said it so many times from this pulpit. Sin is sin is sin to God. It doesn't matter who's committing the sin. We need to come, all of us, and we need to ask God to take away that sin from us. No one's sin is any better or less than another man's sin. Whether we are a Jerusalem Jew, or a prince or a pauper, a saint or a sinner, we often sing that song. Whether I'm a pastor, a politician, or a pew sitter. Have you repented, says Jesus Christ? Is Jesus your saviour? Are you confessing your sinfulness to him? Because if not, you will perish. That's what he's saying to us this morning. John 3.16, a very well known verse And if you don't know this verse, listen to it. And if you do know this verse, listen to it again. For God so loved the world that whoever believes on Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now, I've cut that verse short. But that's what he's saying here. You shall not perish but have everlasting life. If we come to Him in repentance. Do you see God's grace on display? No one is too good for Jesus' grace. No one is too evil for Jesus' grace. We must all come to Him and find grace. Otherwise, the biblical alternative is you will perish. In other words, you will die eternally in hell. And Jesus speaks often about it. There's a third wrong thinking that Jesus points out and you'll find that in verses 6 to 9 in this parable about this barren fig tree. Now, if you're a non-Christian here today, if you don't know the Lord yet, this one is very specifically directed at those who were not yet children of God. Those who had not yet given their hearts to Him. If you're a Christian here today, please, don't sit back and relax now or fall asleep because this isn't for you. There is application. 
But the wrong application is here speaking about the fruits in a Christian. That's the wrong application. Many sermons have been preached on this in the wrong way. It's here directed specifically to those who do not yet know the Lord and how God works in on their lives. Listen to what he says. I'm going to read it again. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now, I've come seeking fruit on this little fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? Can you sense his frustration? I've put this little fig tree in this place. I've built this beautiful wall around to keep the wild animals out. I look after it. I've got workers here. They keep the birds off these trees. We water these things because if you know anything about Jerusalem and um, Israel, things need to be watered there or you need real hardy plants. Otherwise, they just don't make it. So I've looked after this little fig tree. And it's not just three years, by the way, because usually fig trees take about two years to mature before they actually get fruit. So for two years plus three years, I've been waiting for fruit, and there's none. I've had it. Cut it down. I like this vine dresser. He must have green fingers. He says, Sir, let it alone this year. I'll dig around it and put in manure, and then if it should bear fruit next year, okay. But if not, we'll cut it down. Do you see? So what is he saying through this parable? You see, this fig tree should have produced fruit, but it didn't. It had all the conditions right for it, but it didn't, wear, it didn't have fruit. It didn't even bear small little owl plate fruits. Nothing. And so the, the owner of the vineyard comes and says, it's just taking up ground, cut it down. And the, the vineyard keeper says, Lord, just give it time. I'll look after it. I'll dig around it again. Give it one last chance and then cut it down. What's he saying through this parable? He's speaking to those who in their lives have come across the name of God, messages about God, to be converted, to repent or perish. And yet they've done nothing about it. And time and time again, the message comes into their lives. The message comes across their their, their lives. They might read something. They might hear something on the radio. And the message comes, you need to be born again. They hear it time in, time out. And they don't do anything about it. The owner of the vineyard says, enough. They've had enough chances. Cut down that tree. And then the vineyard dresser says, no. Do you see God's grace at work? No. One more chance. Let me give him one more chance. Let me give her one more chance to, to hear the gospel. And then you can uproot the tree. My question to you is today, if you do not yet know the Lord Jesus Christ, is today, that day, when this is the last time you will hear an appeal, come to the Lord Jesus Christ or be saved. Is the vine dresser sitting in your life? He's put the manure around your roots. This is the last time you will hear this message. Come to Jesus Christ and be forgiven of your sins. Forever hereafter, stay in, in a state of eternal damnation. Is today the last time you hear this? You see, that's the reality of this parable. Have you heard that message? The only thing that will keep you from an eternity with Jesus Christ is a hard heart which does not want to hear, which rejects Him and pushes Him away. I pray that you've heard, maybe for the last time, the appeal, come to the Lord Jesus Christ and find life for your soul.
There's something else here. The Jews that were standing around listening to Jesus would have heard this picture of the fig tree and immediately to their minds would, would jump several prophecies that had happened that they knew very well. And because we don't know them that well, we need to be reminded of what those were. You see, Jeremiah often used the picture of the fig tree. And he spoke to the people, to the nation, of being like a fig tree and bearing fruit that God would give them. This is what he said, Jeremiah 24 verse 7. This is way back before Jesus' time. This is what the prophet Jeremiah said to the nation of Israel from the Lord. I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord and they shall be my people and I will be their God for they shall return to me with their whole hearts. And in that paragraph, in that whole description in Jeremiah 24, he uses this picture of this fig tree. In verse 6 he says, But there are some, others in this nation, who will be bad figs, figs that cannot be eaten, and they will be torn down and uprooted. They knew when they heard this. The prophet Micah was another one who used the picture of a fig tree to speak about the nation and listening to God while there is time. They knew, repent or perish. And so they would have recognized what Jesus was saying. You see what Jesus was saying to those people standing before him and especially to those Jewish leaders standing there too. He was saying this, there is still time for you as the Jews, as a nation to repent and to listen to the words of the Messiah, me. But not just you as a nation, there's time for you as individuals to still listen, to repent. But here's the crux. But for all men, there comes a last chance. Have you heard that? For all men and for all women, there comes a last chance. And whether that is the last breath that you breathe, or whether that is the Messiah coming again, for all men, there comes a last chance. Have you repented of your sin? I want to draw three points of application to us this morning. Here they are. The first one is, and I've said it, quite a few times this morning, and I'm repeating it because it's so important. Have you been truly converted? There's another opportunity for you to hear the gospel. This is what it says to you in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 6 and 7. Seek Jehovah while he may be found. What does that say? There is a time when he won't be found by you. Call upon him while he is near. What does that say? There's a time when he'll be far off from you. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him turn to Jehovah, the Almighty One, and he will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Do you see God's grace even mixed up with his judgment? Come to Christ and be saved. The second point of application of this passage is this. And I'm speaking to believers and unbelievers here today. When stuff happens to you or to others, you need to ask, what lesson is there in this for me? Don't just see it and pass it by. Learn from what happens. So when you see big stuff happening to people, see God's grace in action. Because God's grace causes you and I to live. And as believers, what should our response be? I want to take you back to 1856 now to a famous dead guy. Listen to what J.C. Ryle said. Really wise words for Christians. Are you listening? 
He says this. When we see disasters happening, this is our response. Real Christianity starts at home. I'm quoting. When the converted man or woman hears of a sudden death, he or she will say to himself, would I have been found ready if this had happened to me? When he, when he or she hears of some awful crime or deed of wickedness, he will say to himself, are my sins forgiven? And have I really repented of my own transgressions? When they hear of, of worldly men running into every excess of sin, they will say to themselves, who has made me to differ from that person? What has made me from walking in the same road except the free grace of God. You see, it's but, but by the grace of God go I. We need to learn from things that happen around us. There's a third application here for us. When you see stuff happening to others or when it happens to you, don't think my sin is not as bad as their sin. You see, you're in great danger Sin is sin is sin before the Lord's. Your sin is as bad as the next man's sin. And you need to individually come before the Lord and have your sin dealt with. You can't get away without coming before Jesus Christ yourself. Repent of your sin is what he says. And then lastly, the day for mercy is when? The day for mercy is when? Now. That's what that parable teaches you see, what he says is, how long has God given you already? How many of you, how old are some of you here? Some of you are 86 years. Oh, now I'm getting personal. Um, 80 plus years. Okay? Some of you are 13 years, 14 years. Some of you know the Lord. For 80 something years, you've come to the Lord and asked His forgiveness. But it might be that for 80 something years, you have never come to the Lord and asked Him for forgiveness. How long has He given you to come? You might be a 13-year-old or a 14-year-old here. For 14 years, God has given you the time to come to Him. Have you come to Him? Have you asked Him to forgive your sins? For 13 or 14 years, you might have said, I'm a believer. And you've been, look, everyone looks at you and they think you're a believer too. But have you come to the Lord and asked Him to forgive your sins. Have you come to Him in repentance? How long has God given you already? Even now, the vine dresser might be working around your roots in preparation for the cutting out. When we look at that little parable, the wrong question to ask is, what happened to the tree? Do you notice Jesus doesn't give an answer? He leaves it open to the listeners. The wrong question is, what happened to the tree? The right question Jesus wants them to ask is, what will happen to me? you see that? And so the only response we can have this morning is this one. The only response. Lord, be merciful to me. Be merciful to me, Lord. And if you're a believer, love the Lord, all you saints. Psalm 31. The Lord preserves the faithful, but He abundantly repays the one who acts in pride, be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. And so if you're in a difficult situation as a believer, if you're going through the travails of cancer, the uncertainty that things bring, it might be 
financial hardship that you're going through now. This is the stuff I'm talking about. Put your life in the hands of a sovereign God. He's holding you. But come before Him and confess your sin to Him daily. And be caught up in the awe of God. And when you're caught up in the awe of who God is, these other things fade away into insignificance because you are in the hands of Almighty God. And even though you are dying on your feet daily, physically, you are still in the hands of Almighty God. So what can happen? Your body can die, but your soul is with Him. But stay close to this Lord. And if you're not a believer here today, I plead with you, come to the same Almighty God. Because who knows what has been happening in your life. Today might be the last time you hear, come to Jesus Christ and be saved. That might be the last exclamation mark you ever hear when it comes to eternity. Be saved. Let's pray. Lord, all I can plead with you is that the severity of these words hit home. Whether we are believers here this morning, whether we are those who don't know you yet, may the severity hit home. There is still time, but not much. Lord, we know our times are in your hands. You have numbered our days. And so you know, but we don't. May we all make our peace with you. May you forgive us. May we experience your grace working in our lives. And when big things happen to us in our lives, may we keep our eyes on a sovereign God the one who holds us and upholds us. And may we keep close to you daily because we are sinful and weak and you are powerful and holy and almighty. Do your work, I pray. In every single person who's here, may your Holy Spirit convict. I ask this in your precious name. Amen.